Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, as you know, Sean, like the reason that we exist and this show exists is because we want to lift the lid on some of the things that uh, startups and founders find particularly difficult and there's a little bit of a mystery surrounding them. Not only that, we're also pretty big on bringing people the opportunity to talk about some of the journeys they've been through and maybe inspire some other people, but also share some of the lessons they've been through to try and help people be more successful. Now, look, um, you've, had, you've been in the game for a, for a long time. I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying you've been in the game a long time. And uh, you've had some great successes. So why don't we kick off and why don't you tell me a bit about yourself and tell me a bit about what you're doing right now? Excellent. Well, Tom, thank you very much for having me on the, the episode today. Um, as they say in radio in the US, in the US um, first time caller, long time listener. So excited to be here and get a chance to participate and share, I don't want to say wisdom, but share some thoughts uh, with whoever might have an interest in listening to this one. Um, and, and I'm a big believer in openness and transparency. And that relates to everything in my personal life, but also in my professional and business life as well. And so very excited that you all are trying to, um, you know, take down the mystery of, of venture capital to some extent, because frankly, it's not that complicated. Um, the world is getting flatter. We need to make sure everyone is aware of um, the way this industry works. So uh, happy to share my thoughts and my experiences. And then, yes, for way of background, um, I am with ProFounders Capital. So we are a London-based early stage tech-focused venture capital fund. So uh, as you can tell by my accent, although the Americans do say I'm sounding more and more British every single day. That's a real compliment, Seth. Grew up, grew up in the US, but had the opportunity to move over 15 years ago to London. Uh, at the time, it was supposed to be a one-year gig in London. I told my wife, just one year, and I promise you we'll be back uh, on the East Coast of the US. And 15 years later, whenever the Piccadilly line gets super crowded, although I guess that doesn't happen anymore, uh, or gets delayed, she'll turn to me, poke me in the chest and say, you promised me one year. You promised <laughs> me one year. And no, uh, it's been 15 years. The kids were born here. They were ties to school, all that fun stuff. Um, I originally came over because uh, I had the opportunity to join what at the time was Benchmark Capital Europe. So a larger venture capital fund. End up spending five or six years with the team there. Uh, that team is now known as Baldrigan Capital. So during the time that I was there, Benchmark Europe spun into Baldrigan Capital. Um, I then had the opportunity back in 2010, 2011, to basically take my own entrepreneurial leap to some extent, which was to set up at the time a VC fund that was focused on the very earliest stages of company formation. At the time, we saw a gap between angel investors and the big VC funds. And we said, hey, we can do something a little bit different. Let's try to invest in and support companies that are really going through their first institutional round, their prove it or disprove it sort of phase of their life cycle. And Can so I dig into that a little bit now? Can I dig into that straight away? Like, so you saw that gap between Angel and, and VC. What, what is that gap? What kind of things are happening in those businesses that makes them fall into that gap? So what's the difference between someone who is, you know, an angel and someone who's ready for VC money? What, what does that mean? Indeed. So, so um, I was giving you the background there and things have changed quite a bit, right? The financing markets are much more fluid and much more deep than they were seven, eight, nine years ago. So at the time, we saw great angel investors and then we saw venture capital funds that had funds worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which meant they needed to write checks that ranged from four to 10 million pounds, euros, dollars, whatever it might be. But 
for founders, the cost of setting up a company was dropping dramatically. This was the advent of Amazon Web, Web Services, AWS. Yeah. This is the advent of targeted Facebook advertising. This is the advent of Google pay-per-click for startups. And it just meant it was cheaper and cheaper to prove out initial traction as a founder. And so therefore, you didn't need to raise five to $10 million to get that initial traction. You needed to raise two to $3 million. And that was the gap that we saw at the time. Now, uh, clearly we weren't the only uh, people that saw that because the financing markets have, have kind of corrected for that. And now there are plenty of VC funds that focus where we focus. Now, we still like to invest where we can write checks that range from half a million to two million pounds. Uh, we think it's the most exciting time in a company's entrepreneurial journey. It's going from a small team of two to five people to really properly start to scale the sales and marketing effort, scale the tech team, and really get a sense for whether or not this business can become something big. And so we remain true and loyal to investing into to that stage. Uh, we're currently investing out of a 50 million pound fund we aim to do five to seven investments per year. From the very beginning, we have always said we want to invest across Europe. In fact, I guarantee you, guarantee you, we are the only VC fund that has in their legal documents that we can invest in any Eurovision Song Contest country. <laughs> That's in the term sheet. Yeah, we wanted the biggest definition of Europe that one could find. Uh, and so we originally thought about UEFA kind of football. Instead, we thought Eurovision's uh, good fun. So let's, uh, let's have that as the remit for where we can invest. Now, apparently that means we could invest in Australia, I suppose, we although we won't. Yeah. Uh, we will probably not invest in Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and maybe some of the other uh, outlier Eurovision Song Contest countries. But we have invested in UK, Germany, Finland, Spain, Switzerland, and Poland to date. Um, What's, um, so an uh, interesting question on that. Do you, see, um, do you see a difference in terms of entrepreneurial culture between those areas? Um, no, I see a difference in available talent in the different areas, but not in the entrepreneurial culture. And the reason why is that the world's quite flat nowadays. Um, if you are based, you know, think about your podcast, Tom, if you're sitting in, um, in Belarus, you can listen to it as well as you can if you're sitting here in London. You can read TechCrunch if you're sitting in Prague as well as you can if you're sitting in Silicon Valley. And so the information gap, I think, between the different ecosystems has really flattened and it's not yeah. the, the aspiration level therefore has also risen they always used to say u.s invest u.s founders think big would never sell for 30 million um and i think that used to be the case across europe but not anymore i think the aspiration level is just as high um the information gap has narrowed um now do we necessarily have all the talent across each of these ecosystems to build mega companies not yet but hey in a things might change in the post-COVID-19 world where maybe we don't have to be as uh, together in the future. Yeah, you're seeing much on that, by the way. You're seeing, so we, um, we're, we're currently, go, I mean, just in my own company, we're going through quite a lot of hiring in the moment. And the, the motivation to have everyone in our office is slightly different to the way it used to be. Like, you know, I like to have, I believe in collaboration. I like having people around here and having some, you know, like water cooler chat as it is. Are you seeing in your portfolio, um, any kind of change in people's attitudes towards where they're hiring people? Are they being more open to having distributed teams? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we, we're all in tech, right? And, and generally, um, tech has been more open to this for a number of years. I think a couple of our companies had what they call Digital Wednesdays already, uh, where they basically said, Don't, no one has to come in on Wednesday, work from home. Um, and so then we also had a few companies that had outsourced tech teams where tech was delivered by a, uh, a group sitting in, um, in Poland or we had one company that had the tech team in the Ukraine. 
but for the most part, we were still, and, and generally are still fans of bringing people together for collaboration. Now, I think it does differ by the role with which someone has or the, 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 the role within the organization. So tech is clearly, development um, engineers, is clearly easier to segment off from everything else. Not at the highest levels, because I think the CTO and product and so forth really need to interact on a regular basis. But yes, for the most part, you could set the engineers to work and have them kind of accomplish what they need to accomplish. I am still not yet sold that companies can thrive in a work from home environment longer term. I think in the short term, we all had to uh, make do, uh, needs must as uh, a term I picked up here in the UK. And so it's been fine, um, but I just personally don't yet see the tools that allow for serendipity um, cross, um, across the organizational sort of um, interaction as much. It, it's quite stilted, right? Can I schedule a time to have a Zoom chat with you, to have a Google Meet chat with you? Uh, you don't have the informal conversations, which I think it leads to a lot of creativity taking place yet. Now, we're meeting a lot of companies that are working on that and trying to do things around that. Uh, but I think it is important that, uh, that things start to come back to some extent. I'm not advocating that five days a week we're going to be in the office together anymore. Uh, but there is a role for people to getting, one to, getting together one to two days a week or management offsites or whatever it might be to encourage that, that trust building and that sharing of experiences. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. I, I think I've got some really great mates that I've made over the years from being in the office. And the fact is, like, how do I, I wouldn't have become mates with them because I don't work with them. Like, you know, they just happened to be sat along the road from me in the office and somebody just started chewing the fat and, you know, talking about rugby or whatever. And, you know, you don't, you don't get that the same way. You know, it's not, um, yeah, how do, you, how do you, like, you know, round up people to play a game of five-a-side or rounders or something? How do you do that when you're not in the same office? It's, uh, I think there's something where, yeah, it's weird. Like, but it's, my, my view on this is not, not that I'm being, the one being interviewed, actually, so it doesn't really matter. But, the, uh, but my view is that... Well, I'm glad that, to know we're somewhat aligned on that one, then. Yeah, it's just like, it doesn't, it, yeah, it doesn't, I think, and you, you just have to provide flexibility. Yeah, that's why I think you should give people the option. Okay, so I want to dig into two things that you've said already here. The first one, one, I love the fact that you're so early safe. I, I love that you found that, that bit in the middle. Um, now, what gets you excited when you're looking at businesses, and particularly right now, what are the areas where you're like, I've got to speak to that company? Yeah, well, so I, I probably should begin by just very briefly telling you about our investment um, focused investment strategy. So there'll be some funds that say we're a SaaS focused fund or we're B2B or we're uh, FinTech or whatever else it might be. We have a slightly different approach. Right? On that, that's a serious question because I don't, maybe you say to me like, what's your investment strategy? I'm like, surely it's just to make money. Like, what, why are you like, oh, well, we only do B2B SaaS or we do like Jam Jar. They like do retail and stuff. Like, I mean, like, why do you need one? Surely it should just be, we're just looking for the best alpha here. You are, but it's also, um, so, so yes, clearly the, the, the goal is to raise money, but then you need a strategy against that goal, right? So how are you able to, to make money? Um, and then in the venture capital world, it comes down to, how are you able to generate interesting deal flow, convince founders you can be helpful and get into the most interesting companies? And along those lines, you need to have something that you stand out for that differentiates you. There's a lot of venture capital, there are a lot of venture capital funds out there. There's a lot of angel investment money. There's a lot of corporate VC money out there right now. So when you meet a great founder, why would they want to take your money? And that then becomes your strategy. Uh, what differentiates you 
from everyone else, right? So on the, on the ProFounder side, we have from the very beginning said there's great talent across all of Europe. Why would we say we're not going to invest in Sweden, where Sweden has produced some of Europe's greatest companies? Why would we say we're not going to compete uh, or, or invest in Finland, which also has uh, multi, you know, $10 billion companies that have been created there? So we do believe you need to invest across all of Europe. The question is then, how do we as a relatively small fund um, compete in those markets? How are we present in those markets? So from the very beginning, we have always said, actually, what we care about most is fixing broken consumer, broken customer experiences, excuse me. So ProFounders, we care about investing in and fixing broken customer experiences. So every business that we meet, we, what we care about is how they're using technology to make faster or better or cheaper or easier, something that is painful for consumers to do, so B2C investors, or something that is painful for businesses to do on behalf of their stakeholders as well. So, so therefore, we're a B2B, B2B2C investor as well. And so simple examples, right? We uh, were the first investors in Made.com, which is a big e-commerce company. Uh, you might be sitting on a Made.com sofa right now. I can't- Literally am sat on one right now. Everything here. This whole office is, is, is made in Wayfair. So yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, well, not, not Wayfair. We don't like those. Actually, they're a very good company. It's good comparable. We like Wayfair, but clearly made is uh, higher quality stuff all the way, all the way around. <laughs> nice plug, uh, I'll take made, it. <laughs> with Made, we said, listen, when you go buy a sofa, John Lewis, that sofa left the factory at hundred pounds. They're selling it to you for a thousand because they have stores, they have inventory, they have uh, middlemen that, that charge big markups. Let's cut that all out. Let's go direct to factories and build a direct to consumer brand in the furniture space and offer a better quality product at a better price to consumers. So that's what you're looking at there. However, we're also investors in a company uh, in Germany more recently called Enlize, which helps optimize machines on the factory floor. So they've reverse engineered how to get data off all these big blow film extrusion machines focused on the Mittelstand companies. They take those big machines, these assets that cost millions of euros and help make them 2% better. And by doing so, you're saving companies an absolute fortune. So they were spending money building product that was wrong because the machine was slightly off kilter, use technology to fix that broken experience on behalf of businesses. So once again, another broken experience that's being fixed by technology. Cool, I like that. So, okay, so that's the, that's the, that's the strategy of the business you go after, and then you uh, go after those because you feel like you guys can add the most value. In the current climate, marketing is hard, but do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favorite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So what I want to ask you, and we mentioned it very briefly, is something that we, as a startup, we don't really understand is how... Do you, not do you just choose investments based on the fact that you think that they're going to do really well or they fit the strategy? How do you as a business make money? Like how does, how do you, talk to me about the fundamentals of how VC works, if you can, to help me understand a bit more about like, because that's important for people who are going out to raise money. If they understand what the motivations of the VC is other than we just want to make money, then that makes it easier for us to raise it. Yeah, and I think this probably comes from the fact that uh, so many founders have heard in their fundraising process, oh, we're not sure you're VC material or we're not, we yeah. don't, we're not sure you're a billion dollar company. And founders must think to themselves, what, what are you, billion? I mean, why are you so fixated, fixated on that number? I can build a multi-hundred million euro business and that's fantastic. That's really good. Most companies don't get there. What do you mean that that's not good enough for you? And, and, um, and that's 
alongside the lines that I actually spent a lot of time with companies saying, you know what, I'm not sure you should raise venture capital money because yes, there's a lot of benefits that come from raising VC. There's also a lot of downside and we can probably come to that in a little bit as well, as far as what you're giving up when you raise VC financing. But you know, the crux of your question is how do VCs make money? Because that really does impact um, how we think about investments as well. So it's quite simple. I'll use round numbers here uh, just to make things easier. So we will raise, and this is not the ProFounders Fund, but a generic venture capital fund will raise $100 million to invest in the companies. Uh, the first thing you got to know is that we've told our investors, we're going to give back $400 million. We're going to turn that $100 million into $400 million. So kind of, that, Is that a typical return, 4x? That's what you have to say to the investors is they'll say, what do you think you can do? And you say, three to 4x, easily, three to 4x. Um, clearly, most venture funds don't get there, but that is what you pitch to investors. So think about that. So we've got to turn $100 million into $400 million. Um, but here, here and here's where it gets tricky. So that hundred million, you know, we, uh, don't, don't cry for the VCs, but we take, we take management fee off that to pay for the office and the salaries and the associates and the travel and all that sort of stuff. And that's a couple of percent a year of that. So actually when you play that out over five years, plus the ongoing investment management period of the hundred million that we raise 10 to 15 goes to fees to basically run the company. So what that now means is we've got to take $85 million and turn it into $400 million. Now, the other thing that happens is that we will make 20 investments. Um, so let's call it on average $4 million that you will invest in to each company. You know, not every investment we make actually turns out to be a success. Um, statistically, about half the companies uh, don't work out. What does, that, what does that mean, don't work out? What does that mean? Um, as in return less than the amount of money we invested into them. Uh, so we will invest in companies that we want to grow incredibly rapidly. We'll fund them with, with money to, to, to acquire customers, uh, to invest in product. And sometimes um, they aren't able to scale the customer acquisition. They aren't able to generate long lifetime value. The product itself doesn't work, whatever it might be. But of the 85 million that we've invested in the 20 companies, it's called about 40 million goes away, as in is burned. You can set it on fire, that didn't work out. So now we've invested 40 million in companies that are successful. That 40 million needs to generate 400 million. So all of a sudden we're at 10X that we need to make on those companies. Um, oh, but you know, once we invest as well, uh, there's gonna be additional financing into these companies. And so our ownership stake in these companies is gonna drop over time as well. And so um, if we are only, if we first invest, we get 10%, but over time we're down to 5% ownership of the companies. Remember, we've gotta make 400 million, 5% ownership in the companies, Think about how many billions in value those companies have to be worth now for us to get to make the 400 million. And so when you start backtracking that out, we need multiple billion dollar exits to make this work out for, for, for our business. And it's, it's really daunting. It's really scary. It almost makes you not want to invest because the, 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 the idea of having to generate or invest into three to four companies that are worth a billion dollars plus is hard work. And that's to generate, yes, a world-class fund of $100 million and most venture funds don't do that. But that is the aspiration, that is the goal. So that means every investment that we meet, we have to be able to credibly sell ourselves and sell our investors that this company could be worth a couple of billion dollars or a billion dollars plus. And so, yes, it is quite arbitrary and random to say a billion dollars, but there's methods of the madness, right? We need to turn what is in effect 40 million into 400 million. Uh, if we own 10%, that's $4 billion in exit value in those businesses. And so uh, that's what we're thinking about.
And that's why a lot of times we invest in companies. We think there's a credible path to that. We get to the next round and the next round of investors go, ooh, not so sure about that. Um, and because they're, they're in their mind saying, okay, I'm investing at a higher price than Sean. I need to generate that level of return off a bigger fund as well. In their minds, it can't play out. And so um, it, it's been a number of times where it's a fantastic company. Um, it's a company that uh, could generate a very meaningful return to founders. They could do insanely well, but it might not be a venture backable business. That's crazy. When you think about the unit economics for you guys, it's tough. It's a tough game. I know you guys get a hard time because everyone's like, well, you know, 80% of funds are only returning 1x, right? That's because it sounds like it's a fucking hard gig. Um, how do you, I mean, look, your skill in this area is two th twofold, right? It's one, it's picking the right deals and making sure you can identify a business that you think is going to do well. Um, my attitude towards that is that, you know, you back a founder and a, and a market, you know, necessarily more than anything else because the best founders will find a way to make it successful. But then the other thing is then you start to bring something to the table uh, by adding in um, your, your skill set and your, um, your special network and so forth and expertise. Now, you said something very interesting there. You said that sometimes it's a bad thing to take VC money. Dig into that for me. Why would it be bad for like myself? Why would it be bad for me to take money? What's the risk? Uh, so if it comes down to, again, to how venture capital funds are incentivized and, and how we operate, right? So from our perspective, if we were to invest in a company and two to three years later it sells and we make one times our money, that's actually, um, it's not great. It's not a good use of time. It's not a good use of money. And so from our perspective, whether we get back zero on a company or we get back one times on our, our money, it doesn't make a difference to our ability to generate that $400 million, hypothetical $400 million in return. And so we would actually rather push a company to the edge, push them to be very aggressive, knowing that there's a higher chance of failure than be satisfied with one times our money in two to three years. Um, and so what that means from a founder perspective is that um, uh, you've got all your eggs in one basket. We have 20 different baskets or we have 20 different eggs, whatever it might be. Um, and so individually, um, what might be best for you as a founder might not be what's best for a venture capital fund. And I just think as a founder, you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of how VCs operate, how they're incentivized. And and this, this uh, situation where uh, they're going to push you to be very aggressive in the, in the sake of, for the sake of growth. Uh, on top of that, there's some simple things, right? So uh, as, as founders, you own 100% of the company. Post-investment, you own, let's call it 80% of the company or so, between 75 and 80% of the company. On top of that, uh, you have someone on the board of directors who will have veto rights over a number of things. Now, a lot of those are there for um, sort of uh, shareholder protections and so forth. Um, but you have someone that has a say in how your business operates going forward. And um, do you want that? Is that what you think is best for your ability to operate the company to the best of its, its you know, to the highest chance of success for you? And, and it might not be. Now, clearly, uh, there are benefits to VC as money, uh, VC money as well. Uh, the simplest being it allows you to invest ahead of growth. When you raise money, you can invest, sorry, to invest in growth ahead of revenue and profits. So when you raise money, you now have more money, you can invest that money in beating competition, in opening new markets, and in increasing the potential equity value of the business. So a lot of founders say, yes, you know what, I'll take 20% dilution, but I think it's worth it because I now have the opportunity to build a multi-billion dollar company myself. And yes, I might own 20% of that, but 20% of a couple billion dollar exit, that's pretty good. 
Uh, that works for me. Uh, and that's better than actually 100% of a $20 million exit. And so they're willing to take that risk and that trade-off. And then there are the true outlier stories of the Googles, the Facebooks, whatever it might be, uh, the Amazons, the Jeff Bezos. The, 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 the stakesters is what you're looking the for there. The stakesters. Uh, yeah. We'll project forward a couple of years, hopefully the stakesters, uh, where it's, uh, it's, it's beyond transformational, right? But most importantly, it's, um, you're creating something that has real value for consumers at that stage, right? You, you don't get to be a $100 billion plus company unless you're doing something right for huge numbers of people. Yeah. Super Except for Facebook. Okay. Say Facebook okay. truly is, uh, you know, uh, trying to burn down the world. Sorry, that's it. You can, you can edit yeah. that out. That is I, it. I love that. I love that. I saw a really great tweet on that, um, controversially. So, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, he started, uh, Facebook was born out of him starting a, an app which compared how good looking girls were. And, um, and now he's trying to, you know, you know, just control the whole world. And people wonder whether there is some kind of uh, gender bias within that organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what do you think? I'll, I'll yeah. leave that. Um, so, okay, right. So, Mark, that was... please don't, uh, please don't, please don't have someone take me out. Please don't uh, cancel my Instagram account. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Um, super. Uh, that, that was, that was amazing. Sean, I really appreciate that insight into it. I didn't, I didn't realize it was quite so stark, but also really great. Great. Um, what we're going to do now is a bit of a show where I read some questions from our listeners who emailing questions. I'm going to fire three at you. If you don't like them, it's tough. Um, but uh, that's the whole point of the game, right? Okay. First question. All right. Oh, it's a good one. I love this one. Okay. What is a, um, what is the truth about VC that you know, but everyone else is too afraid to say? So what is the truth about a VC that I know or that we know that everyone else is afraid to say? Um, they're, uh, VCs aren't as smart as you might think they are. Uh, so clearly this is a, we have the money, you want the money. So uh, you're going to think that. Um, and, and number two is that there, uh, there are jerks in the industry as well. So uh, I, maybe founders do say it, uh, but they never uh, call people out on it explicitly. Uh, but clearly there are people that misbehave in the industry. And uh, I wish we all could do a better job of uh, having social uh, pressure to fix some of that behavior. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Okay, good. Good response. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase what they've said. They basically said that they've just taken on some funding. They have their core team in place. So they have their dev team. They've got, their mar they've got a couple of someone in marketing. If you hire one person to a B2C business, which isn't the standard stuff you, you do when you're first building a product, and you've just got an MVP, you've just taken on some funding, you're just going through to market. What do you think is the most important area in the area you should focus on the most, yeah. which is maybe neglected? Uh, this is this is the easiest question anyone has ever asked me. So the number one skill set that I think um, any team can add is um, call it what you want, but a metrics guru, a KPIs guru, a data analyst, whatever it is, someone that is measuring every single component of the business and responsible for every number in the business. Um, I think it's valuable because a you can you know you can't you can't influence what you can't measure and what you can't see. And I think a lot of companies are flying blind about some of the metrics in the business. Um, and then if you do start to make changes, you need to know what's being impacted and, and where that's manifesting itself. And I think having someone that is day-to-day, moment-to-moment, on the numbers, on the metrics, on the KPIs is, um, is absolutely critical. And, and in the early days, that's the founder. And it should be the founders 
that are doing that. Um, but as a company starts to mature, um, founder time will be pushed in, will be pulled in many directions. So there'll be hiring, uh, there will be, you know, setting strategic direction, they'll be interfacing with investors, interfacing with customers, interfacing with distribution partners. And so you need someone to own that every, every day, all day. Best answer I've had. I love that, Sean. Um, I'm particularly happy with that because I'm just about to hire one. So uh, thanks for that fist bump. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Last one. Last question. Can you find me an investor? A classic. Um, I get this quite a lot. Okay. Um, what was the deal that you passed on that you wish you hadn't? Oh, um, so this is called the anti-portfolio. And every venture capital fund has deals that they missed out on and that they want to you know, cry themselves to sleep about every single night. And so I have uh, the, the, before I start naming these companies, the consolation is don't cry. that don't cry, Sean. We don't, the, don't the consolation is that at least you were in the running, you saw the business, you might've had the opportunity to invest into it. Uh, and then what wakes me up in the morning, if I cry myself to sleep, what makes me up in the morning is the next one is out there. The next great <laughs> business is always out there. And it's just a matter of hustling and finding that founder who's setting up that company. Yeah. So, um, uh, the one that I will take to my grave probably is TransferWise uh, because I met oh, Tabit man. incredibly early. Um, I was one of the first probably 100 people to do a TransferWise transfer. And I, I want to say that I hadn't been in Europe long enough to appreciate how much money kind of moves around. But my, my use case was like a ridiculously overpaid VC case where I used it to pay for like, I rented for a weekend, like a cottage in France or something where it was like a thousand euros or 800 euros, 600 euros, whatever it might be, sort of an early Airbnb style thing where I was transferring money to someone. And I thought, how many people have that fucking problem? Like, this seems like such an overpaid person's problem. This can't be that big of a business. And boy, did I get it wrong. Um, I didn't even take it to uh, others on the team. I just thought, great user experience. Now, this is what I should have realized. Great user experience. I remember saying, Tom, this is it was amazing. That was so easy. So easy. Lovely. It worked so well. Wow. Minutes later, the money appeared there. I didn't extrapolate to say, wow, okay, if you've got to wedge in to a sector with a beautiful experience, what else can you do with it? How else can you grow that business? Um, and, and clearly, it was a serious, serious uh, investment failure on my side. I'm, I'm, no, I'm heartbroken for you. All right. Well, let's hope the next one is around the corner. Made a good shout, by the way. Yeah, there's, uh, there's always the next one there, right? So we're investors in Unity, the games engine, Small Giant Games was bought for a billion, Not paid, bad. get your guide, others. So we're, we're okay, but that one's still, I feel it deep down. <laughs> I'm glad you do though, because that keeps you sharp, right? I mean, you're still going to look out and you're not going to make the same mistake again. That's the hope. That's the right. hope. Right. Okay, just to be finished, let's get the poster quote. What's your one piece of advice that you would give to every single founder? Um, so, uh, yes. Okay. So the one piece of advice I give to every founder is, um, you can't do everything. Uh, so when you raise money or when you're a founder, you can't be pulled in a million different directions. You can't try to prove a lot of things at once, figure out what your key goal, your key metric, the one thing you want to prove is, and focus everything on that. Nothing else matters to quote Metallica. Um, you know, that is the, the most important thing. And so only try to prove one thing at any given time. Um, otherwise you'll prove a whole lot of nothing. I love that, that's really great. Sean, look, this has been great. You've been amazing. You've taught me more than I could have hoped for on this. Um, and I hope our listeners feel the same. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, my pleasure, happy to be here. Thank you.